It's Monday, April 16th. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser and from Motley Fool Inside Value Joe Maker. Gentlemen, good to see you. Howdy. Joe, welcome back from your honeymoon. Thank you, sir. You've missed two weeks. We're going to give you a few seconds to just sort of weigh in on the stuff that you missed. Um, We've got Oracle and Google facing off in a courtroom. We've got Mattel earnings and a new competitor for OpenTable. But let's start with just 30 seconds from Uncle Joe. You missed a bunch of things over the last two weeks. Stream of consciousness. Rant away. Okay, the Instagram acquisition was actually smart for Facebook because they were a strategic threat. They could buy it for a billion dollars. Facebook's going to be a $100 billion company folded in. It doesn't make sense for anyone else, but it makes sense for Facebook. Uh, Google's results were a complete blowout, phenomenal. Wall Street's making too much of falling cost per click. However, it was totally arrogant with the stock split thing and the new share class. I don't like the move. It shows them being out of touch. It's like our own little version of Jim Carrey and Liar Liar right there. Exactly. Just just banging away. All right, let's start. Jury selection was scheduled to begin today in the case of Oracle v. Google in what is being called, I swear this is true, the World Series of Intellectual Property Trials. Uh, Guys, a little bit of background is probably in order here since we rarely talk about IP trials. Uh, in 2010, Oracle bought Sun Microsystems for $7.4 billion. As a result, Oracle now owns the Java software platform that Sun created. Oracle is claiming that Google stole some of Java to create the Android mobile operating system and is now seeking $1 billion in damages. Uh, it is certainly worth pointing out that not only are we not attorneys, we're not intellectual property attorneys. That said, um, Joe, I'll just start with you. That said, here's our opinion. <laughs> let's let's discuss. Um, I mean, it is it is not an overstatement, I think, to say that the uh, tech world is watching this cl- uh, case very closely. Right, mostly because the CEOs are both stubborn and named Larry. I would say <laughs> that's the most compelling angle. It is a very interesting case, and. You know, judging from some of the evidence that's been, you know, thrown around, it sounds like Oracle does have a pretty good case. What's fascinating is it's one of those situations where Google is A, trying to win, but B, trying to present that even if they lose, that they don't make much money on Android. And Oracle is trying to prove the opposite. So it's an interesting case where a company is really hard sell downplaying how much money it makes from something. Meanwhile, you know, on conference calls with analysts, Google's playing up, oh, well, we're activating 850,000 Android devices a day. And then the courtroom, it's like, well, we don't make any money from that. (laughs) We're just giving it away. Uh, Jason, to uh, one of Joe's points, uh, Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle, Larry Page, the CEO of Google, these guys are among the first witnesses who are scheduled to be called. I can't think of uh, of a case recently where we had such high-profile CEOs sitting... Named Larry. Well, not just named Larry, but just high-profile CEOs in the courtroom uh, behind the witness stand. Big name stuff. I mean, I think it just goes to show really for investors, though, that when I mean, when you're talking about tech in general, I mean, there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes as far as intellectual property. Uh, we talk a lot about these patents and these companies uh, that, that, you know, are tr- fighting over patents, who started what first and who owns what, where. Uh, it's, it's not very clear cut. It's certainly, I think, a lot of wheeling and dealing going on there. It's going to be something that I think drags out for some time. Um, yeah. Well, another oh. thing while I was gone, Microsoft bought all those AOL patents. 
grossly yep. overpaid for them. But I'm out of. I'm done with. <laughs> I don't have any more of my thirty seconds. But anyway, yeah, there's just this arms race for IP, and the Motorola deal that Google went through was exactly for that reason. It wasn't because they really cared about the hardware side. They just wanted some, you know, shields to protect themselves. Well, and and there are really two parts to this case. One is the patents, and it seems like, however, the the <clears throat> the ruling comes down on the patents, that's going to be pretty self-contained. There is also a copyright portion to this lawsuit. And it seems like, and I chatted with uh, Lawrence Greenberg, our chief counsel before taping today, just to get my head around this. Um, it sounds like that is the proverbial can of worms that could be opened. Because if if the judge rules in favor of Oracle and, and basically saying this copyright is, you know, that computer programming is copyrightable uh, as, a, as a way of expression, that seems like it just opens up a whole can of worms for not just the Microsofts of the world, but, but the IBMs of the world, any of these big tech companies that have a lot of patents in-house, um, maybe they could make some money going out and, and trying to litigate accordingly. But it seems like they might be rooting for Google to just sort of, if for no other reason, that that sort of maintains the status quo. I think it certainly dictates. I mean, it's it's not just about what has happened in the past, but these decisions certainly affect how these companies are going to are going to approach their business models, the technology that they employ in their business models going forward as well. And when you have a powerhouse like Google, I mean, a powerhouse like Oracle, I mean, these are companies that play you know into every part of our lives. IBM, another one, Apple. I mean, so it is a big deal, not only for what has happened, but for what will happen. And that's really what's tough to get your head around. Yeah. And just to bring this back to the investing angle with Google, I know that a lot of people are worried about this, but realistically, they're probably not going to have a judgment of anything more than a billion, even if if they lose. This is a $200 billion company. <laughs> it's just a billion. It's yeah. down, well, it's down 2.5% today, which is about $5 billion. So $5 billion and realistically, if they lose, you're looking at about a billion-dollar judgment. So I think it's safe to say that this is comfortably baked into the share price, and I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Just to close out on Oracle versus Google in the courtroom, if I promised you that one of those two CEOs, Larry Ellison or Larry Page, was going to have a Jack Nicholson-like, <laughs> you-can't-handle-the-truth moment in the courtroom on the witness stand, who are you betting on, Joe? Ellison. I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, I'm buying this courtroom. <laughs> No, I think that's about right. I think he probably holds a little bit of a seniority complex over him. Shares of Mattel down 9% this morning after first quarter profits fell 53%. Jason, that's that's a big number. What happened? Um, So a couple of things happened. I think it's tough. Number one, I think this is, yes, a short-term uh not such a good release for Mattel. I mean, that's definitely a, not not the best quarter in the world. But I don't think the long story, uh, the long term story, really is, has changed at all. I mean, Mattel came off a stellar holiday season, and coming into this uh, first quarter, which is typically the weakest of the four, uh, you know, they had a couple of things going on here. They just finished up with this hit acquisition, which brought names like Thomas the Train and uh, you know Bob Angelina the Ballerina, yeah, all these different names under this. So that, that's a good thing, I think, in in the long term strategy of the company bringing more names into their portfolio of of toys, uh, but you know the other point they noted on the call was that their big con- their big customers like Walmart and Target, the big retail companies, were holding back on really much of their buying over the course of the first quarter. They were really tightening up their inventory levels, so there wasn't a lot of spending in that regard either. And management expected this. It's something that really didn't take them or, or anybody for that matter by surprise. Uh, but you know the stock has been on a roll lately. It's about twenty five percent up for the year, killing the market and really killing uh, you know its smaller competitor Hasbro. And so when you see a, a, just a challenging or a headwinds type of release like this, 
you're going to see these kinds of sell-offs. You know, people are going to kind of go figure out where else they can make money. Yeah, it's a short-term blip, I think. But overall, this is still a phenomenal operator, and, and the long, long-term story hadn't changed. Two questions off of that. Uh, Brian Stockton, the CEO of Mattel, uh, said, we consider the first quarter to be spring training for the toy industry. Um, if that's the case, should investors look at you know the Hasbros and just any, anyone associated with the toy industry in any significant way and just sort of factor that into their decision-making? I think so. I mean, if you put – like I put the numbers together with Hasbro and Mattel looking at these quarter-over-quarter numbers, and it's really interesting to see the graph, how they're just starting in the first quarter. The the graphs just go straight up from there to the fourth quarter, and then it just plummets off a hill and starts over again. So the cyclicality is very predictable in this business. And I think that with companies like Mattel and Hasbro that continue to develop more relationships with companies like Disney and DreamWorks, they become more entertainment companies as toys become more interactive. Active. And uh, that's going to be something, I think, that helps separate them from their smaller competitors going forward. So if you have an interest in toy makers, then I think this is the time to be looking at them. And Mattel is one that I definitely like. Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think sell-side analysts on Wall Street who put out the, the earnings targets and revenue targets that we all hear, you know, they can be stupid and short-sighted. They're not that stupid. I mean, <laughs> they're aware that seasonality exists in this business. And these guys just choked and didn't have a very good quarter. And that doesn't mean that their long-term trajectory, as Jason said, is, you know, out the window. But, you know, I do think if you have another quarter like this where they fall short of analyst estimates again, I'd start to be concerned. Yeah, you'd have to wonder a little bit about that. I mean, the North American toy sales were certainly down, down around 9%, I think. Internationally speaking, international sales were about 7%. And that's important because the international segment contributes close to half of their revenues. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that, like we said, the cycle is very easy to predict. And, and I wouldn't be surprised to see these guys, uh, you know, bring it on, bring it on home for the rest of the year. Uh, we have an economic story from Joe's honeymoon that we will get to in a moment. But first, shares of Open Table down earlier today on the news that the Food Network has launched a, a restaurant reservation service of its own. Uh, Food Network is a division of Scripps Interactive. Jason, that's a stock advisor recommendation. What, it is. What do you make of this news? I think it's pretty interesting because Open Table has such a an advantage in this space because of that first mover kind of you know, more or less inventing this market. But I think it's really neat to see to see the Food Network jumping in like this because, I mean, they make a very good point in that this is what they do. They can tell a compelling story and really advertise this kind of thing on their network. And they're, they're going after it. I mean, they're competing against Open Table on price. So they're not just trying to say, well, we're going to be a player in the space. I think they're actually trying to make some waves here. I've used Open Table a couple of times. I mean, it was helpful, I guess. I mean, I also don't have a problem calling the restaurant and just asking for a reservation. <laughs> so I'm not sure how profitable this, how this quaint business and archaic. Really is, you know, in the long run anyway. But I think it's neat to see someone out there like, like uh, you know, Scripps trying to take a little bit of share. Uh, open Table, I should mention, is a recommendation of our Rule Breaker service. Joe, what do you make of this? Because shares of Open Table down about 3% earlier today. And it's worth pointing out, Open Table has relationships with about 17,000 restaurants. Right. And this test that the Food Network is doing, they, they've got about 130 restaurants in Philly and D.C. And they're planning to roll out later in the year to New York and San Francisco. But is is the share price down for Open Table? is that a sign that... Wall Street essentially thinks they have no moat or virtually no moat whatsoever? I think it has to do with pricing. I would be shocked if this food network offering got any real traction because this is a network-based business. So I use OpenTable, and part of the reason I use it is because most restaurants in the D.C. area that take reservations are on there. Uh, 
they, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the system, but when you go to a restaurant, they'll typically have a terminal, and it's kind of the hub of how they make all their reservations if you use OpenTable. Well, if you're on that system, it's pretty tough to switch out, and you're reluctant to switch away because all your competitors are on there, and a lot of good business comes through OpenTable. So I think it's going to be really tough for scripts to, to make headway. Now, I think where it hurts OpenTable is not <laughs> so much the odds they get taken down, but it's just on pricing. So if you do have a low-cost uh, you know, competitor coming in there, realistically, you're not going to leave OpenTable to go to this new network, but you might push back when OpenTable tries to push their price increase. Yeah, and I mean, I think Joe makes a very good point there with the the number of restaurants on the system, because there's no question that OpenTable has the names in, you know, Good Eats doesn't, but... I mean, if you're if you use this type of service often, then I mean, you're going wherever you know you're going to be able to reliably get the reservations, and so that's really the first hurdle that Scripps is going to have to overcome here is actually signing up the clients. But you know, I mean, the competition in the segment's a good thing, and if they can provide a compelling alternative, then I think it's going to be you know ultimately a win for consumers. But yeah, I don't know that really there's a whole lot of defendable modiness in this business. It's kind of like you know the Groupon living social thing. I mean, it's it's not too hard to replicate. I don't. Think. Uh, Jason, just to close out, in terms of Scripps Interactive, what is the next thing you're watching, um, either with the company writ large or with this division that they've just opened up? Is it, you know, is it seeing how quickly they scale this if they bump up the the rollout to New York and San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, we, Scripps makes a lot of money off advertising, and so the business itself, I think, is going to continue to do well there. It's got a compelling menu of channels. Uh, menu, see what I did there? Oh. I saw what you did there. <laughs> But yeah, I really actually will be interested to see if they roll this out to a number of bigger cities. I mean, DC's one. I'm not going to be like, honey, I got a reservation in Philly tonight. Do you want to drive? No, I mean, I don't think many people. Uh, but if you want to do like the bigger cities, like if something like LA or Boston or New York came, came into play, I mean, I, I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that. All right. Just to close out, uh, because we've gotten emails about this. You can always drop us an email, radio at full.com. And some of you over the last couple of weeks have emailed us about Joe Mager not being here, about his honeymoon, um, wondering when he's going to get back, all that sort of thing. Uh, but as I indicated, Joe, uh, we're, we're not going to get into the private details of your honeymoon. Uh, <laughs> he does have a ring on, though. Folks. He does I mean, have, yeah. Is... We, can, we can verify the ring. Um, but uh, there was. An economic incident, I guess is fair to say, <laughs> on your honeymoon, you were robbed. I was robbed oh, no. by a monkey. Right. Oh, I God. was robbed by a monkey. I was in the monkey forest uh, with my new wife. Where is this? It's in Ubud, which is like central mountainous region in Bali. Okay. And we're walking through, and I had been told in advance that the monkeys in Bali are particularly grabby. And they're really comfortable just going after your stuff. So I bundled our stuff up in a bag, had so it packed minute. really tight. Forgive my ignorance, having never been there. Is this like... It's just your average monkey forest. <laughs> okay, but you say monkey forest. But the monkeys are kleptomaniacs. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> is this like a zoo? Do you do you drive up to a gate and it's like, oh, hey, we're here at the front door of the monkey forest. Let's pay our dollar to get in. And how does it work? Kind of, but everything is so much less formal there. There is someone taking money from tourists when you walk in, and they're basically just a bunch of monkeys running around. <laughs> and the advice they basically give you is, don't upset the monkeys. <laughs> You're like, all right. And they'll sell people bananas going in, which I'll get back to. But So we go in, and we have this bag, and we're just hanging out, watching monkeys be cute and cuddly. And then I noticed this tugging, and this monkey had run off with a bunch of stuff in my bag. And he grabbed some suntan lotion and a dress that my wife had just bought. So I run after him. Yeah, a dress. 
So I run after this monkey and I grab the dress and I get it back and I stuff it back in the bag. And another monkey runs up and he bears his teeth at me. He's like, ah. And which, you know, I'm a little nervous about this because I realize this monkey's willing to fight, like to the death, for this dress, which he can't wear. And I just don't want to get my it. face cut. Sounds like so, he is. Anyway, I turn away and I fight him off, and we all lived to tell about fought it. Fought them off. My sunscreen was taken away. They tried to eat it. It wasn't very good. Um, has it occurred to you that there was just a massive conspiracy going on that they that they huddled when they saw you and your lovely bride walking in? They're like, "Okay, look, um, uh, Larry, uh, Walter, Phil, you guys, you guys be cute and cuddly, and and you distract them, and then the rest of us will will just take the stuff." They're like the Velociraptors of primates. <laughs> Well, they did that with some other tourists. So some people were feeding monk like bananas to these monkeys, and while they were like, "Oh, look at the cute monkey!" Another monkey ran up and grabbed like the huge thing of bananas and took off with them. Mm. It sounds uh, like is there a clever man? I'm just I'm just basing it on this one story. But uh, if I get the chance to go to Bali, I'm not putting the monkey forest on my on my to do list. I would not recommend. Do you have one recommendation? Do you have one place from your honeymoon that you're like, "Oh yeah, go here. Don't go to the monkey forest in Bali, but go." Where? Well, Bali overall was beautiful. Without the city, Ubud was great. Um, I really like Penang. That's kind of an, like Penang curry. It, it comes from that city. Great foodie town with a lot of different cultural influences. A lot of great street hawker food. I had bacon on a stick there. I thought Bill Mann would appreciate it. You, 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 didn't, you didn't. I didn't have to make <laughs> reservations. No. You, didn't, you didn't think to bring any bacon on a stick back with you? You know, the whole trip, I kept trying to find funny flavored Doritos. <laughs> And couldn't find them anywhere. All right. Maybe you know, next we talk time. a lot about bacon here. Yeah. Jason Moser, Joe Maker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.